Welcome, glad that you are here. You guys are the perseverers. The sun comes out and we see who perseveres. Uh, It's beautiful to just get a little uh, vitamin D, sun on my skin, get that vitamin D production going in my body. I'm sure you, uh, you feel the same way about yourself too. We're in the third week uh, of a series that we're calling Strong Church, and the subtitle of Strong Church is Essentials for the Thriving Community. These are not the only essentials uh, for a church, but these, we feel, are the essentials for our church in this season. This is, this is what we need. Uh, these are some things that we need. The very first week, we talked about how um, the, it is the gospel that makes church gospel is central to who we are, and it will continue. The good, that, is, that is a word that means the good news of Jesus Christ, of Nazareth, will continue to make the gospel central. Last week, Trevor taught on the sacraments uh, of baptism and communion. These are regular practices in the life of our church that we see as essential. Uh, baptism is uh, the, the entry moment into the Christian faith, it's our first act of obedience physically as we go into the waters of baptism, which mirror the death to our old self and, and then mirror our resurrected life where we've been raised with Christ to newness of life. Baptism is numero uno on the things to do when you begin following Jesus. And then communion is a practice that we continue to come to every single week. You'll see the tables around the room. We as a church family, we celebrate, we enjoy, we partake, we remember uh, Jesus's work for us on the cross and his resurrection for us through this weekly act of remembering him, uh, this weekly act of communion. So um, we've got some study guides. If you're new with us, there's a little table over here right under that QR code that has uh, these Strong Church study guides. And if you've got yours, uh, I don't actually have one up here with me. I don't think I grabbed it. Um, But uh, I want you to just to get used to the study guide each week. There are some questions uh, that it will guide us through as a church community or you as a disciple, but also us as a church community. And then you'll notice there's this, this acronym on every single page, the bottom of every page, it's PDP, that's Personal Discipleship Plan. Um, There's prompts at the very bottom of the the weekly pages that will prompt you to the back of this study guide where you can begin to formulate your own plan for how you are invited, you sense that Jesus is inviting you in this season to pursue him. Um, Every famous theologian, Mike Tyson, said, everybody's got a plan until you get punched in the face, right? You've probably heard this quote. We need a plan uh, for pursuing Jesus. And the reality is that life and circumstance often does. It punches us. It takes us out. It, uh, it, 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 it comes against us. And we need, as the people of God, to not just get pushed around by every circumstance that comes our way or winds of cultural change, but we need to have a plan. We need to be settled and resolved in very simple ways for how we will pursue Jesus. So, um, one of, the, one of the features that we're doing through this series that I know probably makes a, a number of us uncomfortable is towards the end, we'll just ask you, we'll prompt you with a question and just ask you to talk um, to some of the people around you, maybe ask the question to them and just 
see um, in community uh, what comes out, what shakes out. There's this little, um, this little illustration that's been really profound for me in my life. Uh, it, it's this bubble that says your comfort zone in the middle of this bubble. Have you seen this? And then there's another little circle out to the side of it, and it says where the magic happens. And that's what's true. The magic happens oftentimes outside of our comfort zone. And so our prayer is that in community, uh, we'll be able to, to share some things around and, and be um, impacted by what the Lord is doing in other people's life. And we recognize that not everyone in the room is a follower of Jesus. And we're great with that. We love the fact that you're here. Uh, we pray for you regularly. We want you here. In no way do we want to ostracize you or make you feel awkward. And so in those moments, you're welcome to just get up and go grab a cup of coffee or get up if you're extremely introverted. I'm on the introvert spectrum for sure. Um, you can just get up and, and just remove yourself. Or you could just say, hey, I'd, I'd rather listen than share. And, and our commitment as members of All of Life to you is that we will respect that and not not just kind of give you a side eye, but genuinely respect that. So uh, here is the introduction um, to the message this morning. Um, and if uh, I could go a bit long today, so 45 minutes or so, we're already about five minutes in. So just settle in. We're going to be walking through the Lord's Prayer. But here is my intro this morning. There's a, a photograph up on the screen right there. If you are Younger than 30, you can answer this question. If you're older than 30, I don't want your input because you probably already know. Who are the two people in, that, in those photographs? Who is the young boy in that photograph? That's not me. <laughs> we had color photographs when I was that young. <laughs> Somebody's got it. Who's the older guy in the picture? Okay, there we go. We're on to something. Who might the little guy under his desk be? His son. His son. This is JFK Jr. This photograph was taken in October of 1963. JFK is arguably the most powerful man in the world at the moment when this picture is taken. In 1961, JFK announced his goal of landing a man on the moon by the end of the decade, and that occurred in 1969. In uh, 1961, JFK established the Peace Corps, which is, I mean, the, I've thought the Peace Corps was far older than just the 1960s. Apparently it's not. In 1962, JFK navigated the very tense standoff between the United States and Russia that was called the Cuban Missile Crisis, ultimately avoiding nuclear war. This is what history calls the Cold War. His leadership was exceptional. In 1963, JFK introduced the Civil Rights Act, he introduced it in 63, which outlawed discrimination on the basis of race, of color, of religion, of sex, or national origin. But he would not live to see it passed in 1964 because he was assassinated in November of 1963, one month after this photograph was taken. In this photograph, right here in this moment, JFK Jr., under the desk, this desk is called the Resolute Desk. Do you, do you think that he has, what kind of an understanding do you think that he has 
of who his daddy is in this moment? Do you think he understands the scope of his daddy's power, of his dad's power in this moment? I want you to consider, as you look at this photograph, consider the power dynamics in play here. We've got a three-year-old who likely cannot make himself lunch, cannot clean up after an accident, cannot articulate what he needs really, really well in the moment, and the, and the man standing above him or sitting above him, when he tells people to do things, literally everybody scatters and they get things done. He is incredible. He has armies standing at the ready for his orders. The commander-in-chief is what our president is called. Notice the safety in this photograph. JFK Jr. is playing underneath this desk. The most powerful man in the world, arguably, is sitting right by him. Now, if you and I had, a, had a, an appointment with JFK and we're in the office and then we just all of a sudden, instead of exiting, we went and crawled underneath the desk, how do you think that would go for us? We don't have the kind of safety that JFK Jr. had in this moment. Notice also the proximity, just the closeness. His dad's not shooing him out of the way. His dad's talking to people across the room while his little boy is playing. There's a photographer in the room, obviously. We all have our own father stories, right? Some of us are, some of us were safe with our dads. Our dads were very accessible. And some of us, we needed safety from our dads. And there is a host of us probably somewhere in the middle of this room, somewhere in between. And so no matter your earthly father's impact on your life, if you, this is what the scriptures teach. If you and I are a disciple of Jesus, we already in this very moment have a new father who is perfect in all of his ways and provides for us in all of the ways that we need him to provide. And Jesus, our father's preeminent son, he teaches us how to access our available, good, and powerful father. That's what Jesus is doing in this prayer that Jason led us through this morning. Even at three years old, JFK Jr., he knew his daddy. And because he knew his dad, he wanted to be around his dad. JFK Jr. wanted to play in his dad's presence. He wanted to experience his nearness. He wanted to ask him for things. There's probably lots of communication going on between father and son. And that is what prayer is. It's communication with our father. It's how we communicate to him, but it's also how he, one of the ways that he communicates to us. Prayer is communication back and forth with God. Now, there are a number, I, I know this, and I'm one of them, living in all of these places at various points in my life, and future ones too. There's a number of people in the room who have a very complicated relationship with prayer. You've got a complicated relationship with prayer. You've stopped praying. You, you, you've never really prayed You've never been taught to pray, so you don't know how to pray. You forget to pray. You don't like to pray. You're out. As soon as people start praying, you're out. Here's what I want you to hear this morning. Jesus invites you back. Jesus invites you to his presence because if we are to know God relationally, and if we're to take in and we're to accept his love, the road there is called prayer. 
that's how we experience his love. That's how we experience his kindness. But if we refuse to pray, and notice this word refuse, I'm using it intentionally. If we refuse to pray, if we refuse this gift from God, if we refuse it, which is way different than being clumsy with it, I want to say. Forgetting to pray, not knowing how to pray, that's being clumsy with prayer, that's not refusing to pray. But if we refuse, then it's a flashing warning light signaling, signaling that you and I are in significant danger. We're in danger spiritually if we're refusing communication with God. And so as we talk about the, the essential of the scriptures and of prayer uh, this morning, what we're going to do is walk line by line through Jesus's most well-known prayer. It occurs in Luke also, but it's a truncated or a shorter version of it. But in Matthew, it's this kind of full-orbed prayer known as the Lord's Prayer. And I want us to notice how Jesus sets it up as a model. The very first words that Jesus uses, would you put that slide up on the screen of the Lord's Prayer? The very first words are, pray then like this. Pray like this. So he's setting it up as a model. It's a prayer that you and I can pray verbatim if we want to. We can repeat it, but we can also use it as a template. We can let these themes kind of send us loose and various uh, send send us kind of on our way praying for various things. Uh, We use it as a template as we come and ask for the ear of our Father. So Jesus says, pray then. When you pray, pray like this. So this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, is a gift from Jesus to all of his disciples showing us that we have the ear of our Father. Disciples of Jesus have the ear of God. He's listening. He hears you. And he doesn't just put up with you, but he wants to hear from you. He wants to know the desires of our hearts. So let's start. First line, our Father in heaven. Our Father in heaven. These first two words here are the gift itself. Our Father. Jesus wants us to begin. When you pray, pray like this, our Father. He wants us to begin with our Father, which means that he he wants us to know that we have the gift of our Father's attention. That's what he wants us to know. We have the gift of our Father's attention, meaning we're all under the desk. We're all right there. We're all in proximity. And this is not just Jesus' Father, but he's our Father. That's plural, our father, which means that all of his kids are a family that is his family. Jesus is giving his disciples this prayer as a model, and it models how to relate to God. He's saying, don't relate to him as if he's out there, oh, sovereign king, benevolent, you know, like keeping him way off in the distance. But actually, Jesus is saying, when you pray, pray our father, meaning he is imminent. He is close. He's our actual father, not just our creator, not just king, but father. These words are the only explicit time that that a Jew relates to God as father in in antiquity. There are like little hints of it in, in antiquity, but this was scandalous for the Jews to hear Jesus praying like this. The word that he used is Abba. 
It's a familial, close word. And he says, our Father in heaven, meaning that God is an altogether different sort of being. He, he, he's not human. When was the last time you went to heaven? Like, if you want to go to heaven, are you just going to go there? No, you're not. Like, but he's, he's in heaven, and if he comes to us, that means he comes to us. We don't just go to him. He is an altogether different sort of being. He's not human. Our father is not human. He's not our homeboy. He's set apart. He's distinct. He's unapproachable. He's undiscoverable unless he reveals himself unless he reveals himself. And he has revealed himself. Christians hold to, and Catholics as well, hold that, the script, that Scripture is the revelation of God. It's the revelation of God through language, specifically showing who he is and what he's like. Theologians call this the doctrine of Scripture. It's big and it's vast and you can give your whole life studying how the scriptures came together and how the canon was organized. But scripture, we hold in in short that scripture is the true story of God's existence and of God's ways of relating to his creation. And he's not only revealed himself in the Bible, but he's also, scripture teaches us that he's revealed himself to us in his son. So he's revealed himself to us through language, but he's also revealed himself to us through a, 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 a human, a, a person, his son. This is what the writer to the Hebrews says. Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Thus says the Lord, that's what the prophets would say. They would hear from God. They would uh, mediate his voice to the people of Israel. But the, but the writer of Hebrews says, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, Not thus says the Lord, but I, Jesus would say, I say to you, Jesus is the heir of all things, Hebrews says, through whom also God created the world. So Jesus didn't begin to exist at his human birth. He became human at his human birth, but he always has been. Through whom the Father used the Son or or dictated or decreed that the Son would create. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. He represents the Father perfectly. And Jesus, get this, upholds the the universe by the word of his power. He decrees and it comes to pass. Jesus uh, was tangling with one of his um, disciples, a guy named Philip, and Philip wasn't really getting Jesus's identity and his oneness with the Father. And Jesus was saying some things that were weirding them out in John chapter 14. And Philip said, he's like, I'm done. Jesus, just show us the Father and that'll be enough. Just show us that you're one with him. Sign before our eyes and that'll be enough. And and Jesus says, have I been with you so long and still you don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. I and the Father are one in our essence as God. This is one of Jesus' claims to be God in the New Testament. He teaches his disciples to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. This word for 
followed here. It's the word hagiazo, and it means sacred. It means dedicated. Lord, your name be dedicated. Your name be removed from common use. Let your name, God, be kept holy. Whenever you see name, the name of God, where God is jealous for his name, or he is um, working for his name's sake, or we pray in the name of Jesus, name represents who God is and what God is about. And so in the Jewish perspective, a person's name is actually intimately related to their identity, to who they are, to what they are. And so in the Old Testament especially, when God reveals his name as this name or that name, he's using his name to reveal himself as he is. So I'll give you a couple of examples. El Elyon is a name that we hear in Hebrew. It means God most high. He's revealing something about who he is. Or El Shaddai is the Hebrew for God Almighty. So El Elyon is God Most High. He's above all of creation, but also El Shaddai, he is God Almighty. So not only is he above all of creation, but his might is mightier than anything else in creation. So we have God Most High, and we have um, God um, Almighty, but he's also, he calls himself Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. So we've got God Most High, God Almighty, but God near. And he doesn't just stop there. There's all kinds of things that he says about himself in the Old Testament. He says that he is Jehovah Jireh. He is, that means God will provide. So he's God most high. He's God Almighty. He's God who is near. And he's God who cares. We're learning some things about the character of God just through his names, aren't we? And he doesn't stop there. He calls himself Jehovah Shalom. Our, our, the Lord is our peace. Most high, almighty, near, cares, will restore all things and bring shalom. Total peace. When we're praying, hallowed be your name, we're praying that God be known to the world as he actually is, as he truly is. We're praying, we're asking, hallowed be your name, that God, you would have top place in the world and that you would have top place in people's hearts. But we're also praying something else, too. We're praying, when we pray this, we're praying, too, that we would also know him as he is. So not just that they would have top place, but also we're praying, hallowed be your name, that I would give you top place in my life, that you'll be number one in my life. If you and I pray like this, if we pray a prayer like this, a genuine heart. God will show you things about himself tomorrow that you don't know about him today. Do you understand? He will continue to reveal himself to you. There are things that we don't get about him today that as we continue to ask him to reveal himself and study and search the scriptures, he will continue to reveal himself. If you uh, struggle to pray, learn to pray, hallowed be your name. Sacred be your name, because he will show you who he is. And praying sacred be your name into our father's ear will put the desires of our father into our hearts. Like it will literally start some rearranging work inside of us. Remember, if you're a disciple, you have the gift of your Father's attention. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your here is a personal pronoun. It's 
not our kingdom or their kingdom. It's your kingdom. It's one being's kingdom. Kingdom is singular, not plural. It's not kingdoms. It's kingdom. So one God, one kingdom. This means that God is king and the kingdom is his. And if he's that king, if he's the king, what are you? What am I? We're probably a lot of things, but a king isn't one of them. To ask for the king's kingdom to come means that we are submitting our kingdoms to his. We're not asking him to serve our tiny plastic toy kingdoms, the stuff of tomorrow's landfills. We're asking that our hearts and our kingdoms be oriented to his eternal indestructible kingdom. We're asking him to calibrate our hearts so that we give our all to serve his indestructible, never-ending kingdom. To pray your kingdom come is actually to take the posture of a servant. It's like, whatever you want, Lord, whatever you want, shape me, do your will in me. If you pray this with genuine willingness to be reformed by God, he will change you in real time. He will change us in real time. I was tussling with my wife, Meredith, for a few days uh, this last week on a, a thing that feels really important to both of us. And we were as united as two opponents in a cage. You get what I mean? Like, we just could not get on the same page. And I knew that something was off in me, but I couldn't stop fighting for what I, what I wanted in the moment. And I'm finally, like, after a, a phone conversation where we're both kind of hang up frustrated at each other, I just go walking in the field behind this building and I'm just walking and I'm like, and, I'm, and I know something's off, but I can't let go of it. It's like that sense that you're just holding on. And I start praying Psalm 139, which is this search me and know my heart, reveal ways in me that are grieving to you, God, and lead me in the eternal way or the everlasting way, the good way, the ancient paths. And in that moment, in real time, I could feel like my heart begin to let go of what I was clinging to. And I began to realize that what I was fighting for wasn't even what I actually wanted. But I was like so in the fight that I, now I just couldn't lose. And I had to, like I had to let go of that. I had to be rearranged. And I got rearranged. He, he, he reordered my desires and what I was after in that moment. Your kingdom come. When we start to pray that, our wills start to change. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God has a will. How do we know what it is? How do we know what God's will is? This is a big question. How do I know the will of God for me? He's revealed himself to us in his son, in Jesus Christ. He's also revealed himself to us by his spirit, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has written the Bible through the hands of men. Second Peter 1.21 says that the Spirit of God carried along men and spoke through them. Meaning he used, the Spirit of God used a means, human means, for the quill and the scroll 
to record language, to record revelation of who God is and what he has done. The Holy Spirit has given us the scriptures. Theologians sometimes talk about the, uh, the, the, these different aspects of the will of God. Uh, one is known mostly as the secret will of God or the hidden will of God, and one is known as the revealed will of God. Um, God's, I want to talk about these for just a moment. God's secret will involves elements of our lives, our, our futures, our circumstances, known only to God until they are revealed, until they come to pass, until we go, oh, that's what you were doing, right? Common example of this, we, we've got an outcome in our minds for something really important to us, like we want a relationship to turn out a certain way, we want a relationship to work out, and then this relationship ends, and the relationship is painful and confusing, and we're going, what are you doing, Lord? In our mo- more honest moments, we're saying, like, you don't really love me, you don't really care about me, you don't really want what I want, and then time goes by, and we meet somebody else, And we realize that if we were in that relationship, we wouldn't have this relationship. And we kind of have the aha moment. The idea is that we want something and God seems to want another. And there's this really uncomfortable mystery in us. It happens in all kinds of different areas of our lives and our futures. There's this uncomfortable mystery in us and like angst in us until God shows us what he's been doing. You'll read about these kinds of things all over in the Old Testament. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 is one of these areas where God says, I'm God and there is no other. He's asserting his authority. God most high, God almighty. I am God, there's none like me. I declare the end from the beginning and from ancient times I declare things not done. That's the stuff that hasn't come to pass. And God says, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish everything that I purpose. He's like, Don't worry about it, human, dust, clay. Don't worry about it. I've got it. So that's God's secret will. But then there's God's revealed will, which is accessible and it's clear. Uh, God's revealed will is what he's made known to us through the scriptures, through the Bible. Um, For example, we know that it's God's will that we love him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind and our strength. We know by reading in the Bible that it's God's will that we love the people around us, even enemies. We know that it's God's will that we forgive, right? We know that it's God's will that we act justly. We love mercy. We walk humbly with our God. We we know that it's God's will that we don't murder, that we don't steal, that we don't assault people that we don't slander, that we don't gossip, that, that we're not sleeping with our girlfriend or our boyfriend or doing stuff outside of the covenant of marriage sexually that we should not be doing or boasting in our possessions and in material wealth. We know all of that is God's will. How do we know? Because he has revealed his will to us in his word. This is his revealed will. But how will we know God's revealed will if we are consistently rejecting it? if we're consistently rejecting the scriptures, if we're neglecting them. This is why taking in the Bible is so vital. Taking it into us, reading it, not just reading it. Some of us have difficulty reading. Genuine difficulty, disability is a factor in reading. And so we listen to the scriptures. We memorize and rehearse the gospel. We memorize principles from the scriptures, uh, wisdom for godly living. We rehearse the teaching of Jesus. 
So when temptation comes and when our unbelief is really strong, we have God's revealed will at the ready to draw on and that can recalibrate us. One of the most famous people in the Bible, a guy named David, said, I have stored up your word, your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. He's storing up God's revealed will within him, God's commands, so that when temptation comes, David won't sin against him. David will be able to withstand trial. Ironically, we're really prone to overlook God's revealed will, and sometimes we are way too focused on God's secret will, right? We want to know what God's hidden will is for the future. We, yeah, th- these are all totally okay questions. Who am I supposed to marry? What am I supposed to do? Are we supposed to move? Am I supposed to buy this? All the different questions. Those are the right questions to ask, but we can really hang ourselves up on them and neglect the revealed will of what scripture commands us to do. There's a hundred or a thousand things that are like right here, live out of this. And and as we live out of this, our trust and our faith for God will grow and we'll be able to live more uh, at ease, maybe. Maybe that's not the right word with God's secret will until things come to pass. And there's just some things that we're never gonna know. This side of heaven. His secret will, his will is that we trust him. Remember, we're the ones under the desk. We're not the ones on the magic telephone telling people to do things. But when it comes to his revealed will, his will is that we pursue scripture's commands. And so I'm gonna ask the question again, how will we know God's revealed will if we don't know his revealed will from scripture? We've got to dig into his revelation. And so in your, in your study guides... At the very end, in the PDP section on page 24, there's this section that says, like, here's how I want to pursue reading or listening to Scripture. I want to do it for this many minutes a day. Here's a plan that I want to use. And here is uh, the time of day that I want to do it because I know that's a time where I can often spend time. Please, some of you are perfectionists in the room and you're like hardcore type double A go-getters and you're like, I want to read the Bible for six hours a day and I want my whole family to do it with me. Mm. No, you might not get there day one. Like break off something that you can actually chew and that will be a joy to the people around you too. 15 minutes, read or listen. Lunch break. Are you eating lunch in your car when you're on lunch break? Or you're, you're on a, like, wherever you, maybe there are some low-hanging fruit moments where you can just engage. You can just, you can put the earbuds in, or you can listen to it on your phone, or you can read it on your phone, or read it through your physical Bible. I want to encourage you to engage in this reading plan, or in some sort of a reading plan. Jesus says, give us this day our daily bread. He's saying, give us today's bread today. Some, some theologians say he's actually talking about tomorrow's bread. Give us tomorrow's bread for today too, that we know that we'll be okay. He's, this is a prayer of provision. He's saying, take care of me, Lord. Jesus is promoting an awareness and an acceptance of our unending daily dependence. We live lives of trust. That's what the Christian life is about. We walk by faith, not by sight. Randy Alcorn, he writes, the phrase, give us this day our daily bread is a powerful reminder that God cares about our physical needs. He knows that we need food, we need shelter, we need clothing, we need other necessities to survive, and he promises to provide for us. But this prayer is also a call to simplicity. 
And it's a call to contentment. We'll talk about this next week, in week four. We're not asking for luxury or excess, but for what we need to get through each day. We're acknowledging our ultimate satisfaction comes from God, not from material possessions. We're trusting him to give what is best for us, even if it's not what we have chosen, what we would have chosen for ourselves. Give us what we need, Lord. Jesus is teaching the church to come to him with our requests, with our needs, our actual physical needs. Take care of us, please. There's this line, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. The expected fruit of somebody who is being gripped by the good news of Jesus is a humble awareness of flaws. Not their flaws, our flaws. The expected fruit of somebody who is meeting the real Jesus in real time is a humble awareness of the ways that you and I fall short. Sometimes seeing this stuff, man, it makes us real uncomfortable and we want to deny it. It can grieve us to see our flaws. But when it's the goodness of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that's exposing our flaws, there's usually an intense kind of freedom that's following it right after or that's right beside it. I I was, some of you know my story, I was a sucky human being for a good portion of my life. And I met the real Jesus in a profound life-changing way in 2004. And there's this moment on February 7th, 2004, where I felt like I could see all of the debt that I had racked up. You know how when people have life and death experiences, they like see their whole life flash before their eyes? I felt like I could see the record of like my flaws and, and, and all of the different ways that I was a punk just flash before my eyes. Drugs, the stealing, the using people, right? Intense selfishness, anger. But wow, like in the moment, while I was seeing this stuff about myself, I was also perceiving God and his holiness and goodness with a similar kind of clarity. And they were like right there in the room together. And God is standing there with me in this moment. Standing in my place. He's not wagging his finger at me. His brows aren't furrowed at me. He's standing there in my place, not condemning me, but offering me freedom taking the debt that I owed him, gathering it up himself, putting it on his shoulders and offering me the rewards that he has earned through his perfection. A completely unfair deal to him. All the way. But grace upon grace upon grace to me. And I could feel the burden of what I had been carrying just fall off. I could feel it fall off. Jesus is in this mirroring business. When, we're, when, when we are faced with his flawlessness, we, are, we see ourselves even more clearly. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature. He's the image, Colossians says, of the invisible God. And so when we, 
uh, come to behold the real Jesus and see him from the pages of scripture and history. We see the good about humanity. We see the beauty of humanity ultimately shown to us in Jesus. And we also see the real funky stuff, the bad, the ugly, the rotten. And when we come to experience the freedom that Jesus gives, a fruit of that freedom that we experience is that we begin to believe that it's possible for other people to have it too, even our enemies, even the people who have wounded us. It is not good enough for our souls to just receive God's forgiveness. Our souls also need to be willing to give God's forgiveness. When we face the evil as it really is in ourselves, and when we receive God's pardon, we are made more ready to, ex- to, to forgive the evil that we experience in other people. This is a unique work of God in us. This is his work in the human soul and in, in, in the heart. There, there's the sequence to it too. The, the first part, forgive us our debts, forms this posture within us that is needed in order to live out the second part as we also forgive our debtors. If you're always forgiving others without asking for forgiveness yourself, beware that you're not being filled with pride rather than being made more humble and in the likeness of Christ. This last line, he says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus' brother, a guy named James, who wrote the book of James in, the, in our New Testaments, he says this in James chapter 1, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. That word for trial is the exact same word for temptation. It's used in the Lord's Prayer. For when he has stood the test, that's also the same word for temptation, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let nobody say when he is tempted, same word, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Who does God tempt, according to this passage? No one. But it's kind of at odds with, lead us not into temptation in the Lord's Prayer, or feels that way. James writes, but each person is actually tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire or her own desire. Then this desire, when it has conceived, it gives birth to sin. The desire starts here. We harbor it. We nurture it. And then it starts to come out of our mouths and out of our hands and out of our lives. And, uh, and then sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. And then James says, do not be deceived, my brothers and sisters. Leon Morris, he writes, God tempts no one, but the disciple knows his own weakness, knows his own flaws. And in this prayer, the Lord's prayer, lead us not into temptation, the disciple seeks to be kept far from anything that might bring him into sin. The Lord so often leads us into testing. The Lord himself never tempts us. The Lord often leads us into hard circumstances. He brings us into trials so that we may overcome them by his strength and so have our faith in him strengthened. Jerry Bridges, he writes, the phrase, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, reminds us that we're in a spiritual battle and that we need God's help to overcome. We're asking him to guide us away from the things that might lead us astray. And we're asking God to protect us from the attacks of the enemy. And we're also asking him to give us the strength and wisdom to resist temptation and to do what is right. Here's where we'll close. 
To be delivered from trial is also to be delivered to greater dependence. To be delivered by God from the trials, to have our faith strengthened as we undergo trials, is to be delivered to something. We're delivered from something, delivered to greater dependence. Delivered from evil or from the evil one and delivered to whom? One writer says, to God, our dear heavenly father, his name hallowed, his kingdom extended, his will done, our needs supplied, our sins forgiven, our temptations overcome. What a prayer. The power dynamics between father and, or between us and our father are more extreme than what we saw on the screen with JFK Jr. and his dad. And yet safety with our father is even more certain. The spread between us and our Father in heaven is far more extreme. The safety that we have with him is far more certain. The nearness to him is more constant than we think. And God is far more willing to hear our prayers than we are even to pray them. Is this how you know your Father? More willing to hear your prayers than you're even willing to pray them. We're all under the desk. And he's glad to be our Father. He's glad to be your father. We have the gift of his attention. Will we open it? That's the question for us. I want to just ask you one question, and it's a simple question. We're not going to do the discussion time. Everybody in the room collectively exhaled. We're going to just process this a bit. Um, We're going to take communion together. We're going to sing together, and we're going to rejoice together. But I want you to ask this question of yourself. And, and maybe you write it down in the back of your PDP. If you began praying for just one thing to happen in your life according to God's will, what you know to be God's will, if you were to pray for just one thing in your life according to God's will, what would it be? How would you start praying? How would you start engaging? There's a section on page 24 in the study guide saying, I, I want to pray too, and here's how many minutes I want to pray a day, and here's the time of day when I want to try and engage God. And I want you to just be thinking about, like, what is that one thing? And if you're a multitasker, you're like, I can't just narrow it down. I got four really important things. What are the four things? What are the three things? What are the two things? If you were to pray these things according to God's will, what would they be? Be thinking on that. Pray with me. Father, we love you. You're present to us. Uh, we, we, we love the fact that we have your ear. We love the fact that we're accepted by you through the work of your son and our faith exercised in him. We love the fact that you give us your spirit to preach truth into our hearts. You give us your spirit to see our sin so that we can forsake it Give it to you and trust you for our being and our futures. Lord Jesus, we love you and we trust you. And we pray this prayer of gratitude in Jesus' name. Amen.